Welcome to another edition of Sleuthing Sisters. This week we'll do another episode of Murder in My Neighborhood. So let's jump right into it. A few weeks ago we covered on this podcast a story from our own neighborhood while growing up. This case is about several murders that had taken place in a town located in Maryland about 20 minutes from Baltimore. I'm sure no one ever thought that murder would come to Gambrels, Maryland. But it did. He did. Here are the stories of Boom Tem Anderson, Elaine Sharika. They were killed in Gambrels, Maryland. Lisa Kathleen Haino. She was killed in Glen Burnie. And Deborah Cobb. Forestville, Maryland. Some of the descriptions of the scenes are horrible, so I will prepare you beforehand. The first victim of this murderer was Boom Tem Anderson, 34. She was found nude, strangled, and stabbed to death in her bathtub on October 8, 1986. It is said that she was also sexually assaulted. The 11-year-old son of our fiancé unfortunately found her body in the bathtub face down. Her attacker at the time was only 17 years old. It is also interesting to note that in a Baltimore Sun article dated August 17, 2007, the said murderer had given their older son a ride home to an active crime scene. He was right under their noses can you believe that I know talking to one of my um, neighbors she mentioned that the murderer actually also stood outside and watched watched knowing what he had done I mean you can see my face it's like horrible horrible he was right underneath their noses all this time approximately 19 months later elaine sharika on may 23rd 1988 elaine was 37 years old and from talking to several of my neighbors that knew of her she was an avid jogger and can outrun anyone unfortunately on that fateful day she was unable to outrun her assailant now here's a little interesting tidbit speaking to one of my neighbors um, a gentleman a couple doors up from her was supposed to go running with her that morning but he decided to change his mind and not go for a run with her and can you imagine fate that day imagine if he did go jogging with her she could still be here today but he changed his mind and it's no fault of his own you know things could happen things could come up he was a father you know with children um so you can't really fault him but can you imagine if he did go out jogging with her i mean fate i mean it's it's such a weird word and a weird I don't know what to, how to call it, like fate. Uh, and now, of course, on that note, I don't, I don't even know where I left off. <laughs> but so let's see. Unfortunately, on that day, she was unable to outrun her assailant. 
They claimed that her killer may have been familiar with her route as she jogged and hence became an easy target for him. I also read in several articles that Elaine ran past him as he was doing drugs and he basically grabbed her. Elaine was found with her throat slashed, sexually assaulted, beaten, stabbed, and strangled. Her body was found by a farmer as he was clearing the field. He first, now this is, I'm getting this information from um, a local mechanic. And, um, you know, because they seem to know everything. They're like hairdressers or like um, chiropractors. They know everything about everyone. He thought it was a mannequin. But what's the rule, as they say in crime junkies? It's never a mannequin, people. At the time of this killing, the killer was going to be turning 19 years old. Two kills and not even out of his teen years yet. While the murderer took a break from his crimes, he had gotten married, became a father, and moved to a new area called Glen Burnie, which is roughly about 20 to 30 minutes from Grant Gambrels. Approximately four and a half years later, he struck again. This time, his victim was Elisa Kathleen Hano, 14. On January 15, 1993, she was found to death. She was found stabbed to death at noon. The only... Well, actually, I'll take that back. She went missing on January 15, 1993. But on January 16, she was found stabbed to death and nude. The only piece of clothing left on her lifeless body was just a sock. Her body was found by her mother's boyfriend as he returned from a jog next to a ravine. It's sad to think that Lisa most likely used that trail as a shortcut to Old Mill High School without any problems until he came along. They believe he may have watched her for several days before making his move. It is also believed that his family may have lived in the same apartment complex as Hano's family did. Law officials did feel that the crimes above were just crimes of opportunity. I mean, kind of makes sense. I mean, a girl walking, um, a woman jogging, another woman taking a bath. I mean, that one's a little weird, you know, but, well. Now, we will get into his final murder, and her name was Deborah Cobb, 37. On June 13, 1994, Deborah, who was an office manager working within the same plaza that the murderer was employed at, he was employed with United Van Lines. According to the Baltimore Sun, he walked into her workplace with a knife and handcuffs. He asked to use the restroom. Upon his return, he handcuffed Deborah, stabbed her 14 times, and slashed her throat. The killer had stolen some cash and checks from her workplace as well as her employee ID card from her office. The killer was arrested not too long after her body was discovered. And you know what was like I don't want you to use the word great, but I'm so great that grateful that he had her ID card in her in, in his desk. I mean, how stupid stupid are you <laughs> but I have to say I'm very grateful when you're not smart <laughs> I'm sorry I'm just gonna call it like I see it people 
I wanted to focus first on the victims of these horrible crimes. And now we will get into the murderer of these women. His name was Alexander Wayne Watson Jr. He was born in 1969, and according to public records, Alexander's family moved to the Gambrels area in 1985. The home which his parents still currently live in is quite cute and quaint. I cannot believe that home housed a killer. You know, it's, it's amazing because I've walked past their street. I have walked on their street and it's a cul-de-sac. So it's basically like a, a dead end. And it, it's just so amazing that I get, I'm going to admit like this morning, my dog and I took a walk down that street. My dog just likes to walk. She likes to walk everywhere. And we, as we stood across from that street, I could just envision that court, that, that, uh, road that cul-de-sac being swamped with police cop cars police officers getting out their cars red and blue lights flashing you know i mean you probably gotta think about it you know like like from the neighbor's perspective what in the world is going on you know but let's get back to the podcast As we went through his dreadful deeds listed above, he was eventually charged with the murder of Deborah Cobb on June 20th, 1994. On December 12th, 1994, Watson pled guilty to the killing of Deborah Cobb. He was given a death sentence at that time. And yes, he pled guilty to only Deborah Cobb murder. He had not yet been linked to the other three, but thankfully, Due to the advancement of DNA, they were able to obtain from Elaine's case body fluid. Lisa's case, since there was no sexual assault, a Newport cigarette was located nearby. There was blood on it, but it turned out to be the victim's. But thankfully, on the unused filter side, they were able to extract DNA from that. And thankfully, the DNA matched to Watson for those two cases. So at least they got him for two additional cases. It was some time, 10 years to be exact, when the DNA from Anderson's case was linked to Watson. The police officials always felt that he was involved with her death. One of the terms of his sentencing in the remaining cases was that he was that the family wanted to meet with him and get closure for themselves. It's interesting to note that from an August 17, 2007 Baltimore Sun article, they went right over a fingerprint that Watson left on a hairdryer in Boomtown's bathroom. And then that's how they got him. And that's how they got him. I mean, I'm just going to be realistic. You know, when I first read that, you know, my eyes are rolling. I'm like, really, police officers, really law officials. But I also have to remember, we're all human. We're not perfect. So things can happen. And I guess at the end of the day, they got the fingerprint, which is the most important thing, to be honest. They got him. 
According to the Baltimore Sun article mentioned above, Watson got a plea deal and a death penalty would be taken off the table. Under this deal, he had to meet with the families of Boomtem, Elaine, and Lisa. By all accounts, it sounded as if the death penalty came on the table for the murder of Deborah. Because of his age at the time of the death of Boomtem and Elaine, he did not qualify for the death penalty. He was a teenager. So I guess they don't really give death penalty to teenagers. I'm assuming. And Lisa's death did not constitute the death penalty. The meeting did happen. They met with him in a room where grand juries met. And from my understanding, it was under tight security. I believe I read he was shackled and there were guards everywhere. The article also went into describing how Watson spent approximately six hours first meeting with each of the three families individually and then with all of the relatives as a group. Jennifer Scott, Elaine's daughter, said he was quote-unquote respectful but never apologized, never dropped eye contact with her as he answered questions about her mom's death. According to the article, he clarified that he was not stalking their mom she was just running by. He grabbed her and she met an untimely fate. Kimberly Kilgore Anderson, Boom Tem's daughter, says she left more frustrated after the meeting. She felt more lied to and was much more angrier. To be honest, I almost felt like this quote unquote meeting, he had the power in his hands. I almost felt after reading this article, he got what he wanted and the family walked away empty-handed still. It was so sad to read how the interaction had gone for these families. Alexander basically just sat there and he was emotionless. I guess no matter what he said or did, it wouldn't bring back their loved ones. At least show some de decency to their family. At the end of the day, I can call it as I see it. He was a cold-blooded murderer. Interesting note. At Watson's sentencing, he asked for leniency. I can never say the word. Well, I just wanted, you know, a good ending. <laughs> he stated that the killing was a terrible mistake. And that was a quote. And he blamed it on his crack cocaine addiction. I always love when killers ask for, you know, mercy. Maybe I'm just a mean person. I don't know. But I would love to ask these killers, what mercy did you give to your victims? No, seriously, what mercy? What mercy? If that victim is not here in the flesh to confront you, you gave them none. None. Any and all killers deserve to be punished to the fullest extent of the law. I do believe drugs can make people do some crazy stuff. So as the old saying goes, don't do drugs. He also stated he believed in his heart that he was a quote unquote peaceful person. I am glad no one fell for it. Peaceful person. I would personally have to question that. If you notice, he claimed he was a quote unquote peaceful person. And he asked for mercy. Why didn't he just come forth and let them know he had killed any 
any of the other victims. I mean, he was already caught for Deborah. I mean, he was getting life in prison, so it wasn't really going to matter. I mean, seriously, it wasn't. He had the nerve to make all those families suffer with no closure until it was absolutely positive that the DNA connected him to all the crimes. His own action speaks volumes. DNA is truly becoming one of the best tools for law enforcement professionals. It still may take some time to connect some cases, but it can possibly happen eventually. At the age of 37, Alexander Wayne Watson Jr. was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole. The judge basically broke it out as follows. Five life sentences, two without parole, three life sentences sentences served consecutively, and two consecutively. As a bit confused with the sentencing since he only had four victims, but I wonder if they gave him five life sentences since the death penalty was taken off the table. It was also noted that during this sentencing phase, none of Alexander's family was in the courtroom. And as a side note, his marriage of nine years also came to an end. I could not find anywhere in the articles I researched if they spoke to Deborah Cobb's family about getting him off of death row. I know the article stated he spoke to the three families, so I am leaning that they did not speak to the family about this decision or it was not made public. I do feel their input should have been an integral part of the decision. In my opinion, I feel meeting with him accomplished nothing but stirred up more anger and resentment for those families he met with. At the end of all of this, he will die in a place he truly belongs, prison. I am so grateful for DNA and that they were able to apprehend him before he acted again. As stated above, four women were brutally taken from their loved ones. Who knows how many more lives he could have taken. I now know when I walk past my neighbors or even their homes, I think of things differently especially after researching this story. I even walked the path where Elaine's body was found. And now when I walk there, I feel kind of spooked by it. Once again, my neighbor told me exactly where it was and where they found her body. So, you know, it's kind of odd, but you kind of feel like putting flowers out and just thinking about it. You know, you don't have to say why or anything, but just put a little flower down. I now know I will say a prayer for her and pray she is at rest. After all of this, it just goes to show that no matter how safe and nice you think your neighborhood is, there are monsters lurking everywhere. Mm-hmm.